The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Matthew chapter 5, I want to read verses 21 through 26 this morning. Hear God's word to us. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. God, your word is given to us. It's given by your spirit, and your spirit continues to speak in it to us. Would you challenge us where we need to be challenged? Would you comfort us where we need to be comforted? Would you make us more like you to the glory and praise of your name? We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Jim was excited when he heard about the new soccer coach his school had hired. The previous soccer coach was just an interim until they could find someone who actually knew what he was doing. But it only took a few weeks for Jim's anger and frustration to begin to build. His son practiced hard daily, but never made it into a game. Never saw playing time except for the last minute if the game was a blowout. He counseled his son to to talk to the coach and go to him. But that didn't seem to change anything. By the end of the season, Jim couldn't help but make sarcastic comments to other parents in the school, to tell the story of his frustrations to other fathers in his church, and he carefully avoided the coach because he couldn't imagine a face-to-face conversation with him that wouldn't involve his anger coming out. Sue, she grew up in a Christian family, a family whose parents loved her and wanted the best for her. But toward the end of high school and through college, tension and conflict seemed to build between her and her parents. Her parents felt that she was going astray because her opinions weren't as conservative as theirs. And this only grew worse when they didn't approve of the guy she started dating. Sue tried to engage her parents, but she felt like the only thing they did was criticize her and question her. When Sue was at college, it was much easier to just stay at college with friends than come home to a house of tension. And so her parents felt like she was abandoning the family. Sue wanted a relationship with her family. But when she talked to them, especially her mom, it always seemed like they ended up accusing her of changing, leaving, abandoning the family, of making bad decisions. And she left feeling hurt and frustrated. Peace seemed impossible unless she would just admit she was wrong about everything, but 
Surely that wasn't a true reconciliation. What story do you have about a relationship that's broken down because of conflict? Maybe it's a neighbor who criticized your lawn care. Maybe it's a family member who ignored you or hurt you when you felt like you needed them. Maybe it's a boss or a coworker who passed over you or criticizes you publicly. Being a Christian and coming to church doesn't seem to help sometimes either. In fact, sometimes church seems to be a breeding ground for conflict. And maybe you feel like you come to church or leave church full of tension, anger, and this burden, either from conversations you've had or from the efforts you've gone to avoiding conversations with certain people in your congregation. Two weeks ago, Pastor York urged us to consider that conflict is an opportunity to glorify God. And last week, Dr. Light reminded us that all true peacemaking begins with acknowledging our own sin and our own fault. But even if we do desire to glorify God, and even if we do are willing to acknowledge our sin or our faults, peacemaking is not easy. And so this morning we want to see how we should strive to be reconciled with those around us. As we look at the how, what the Bible says We need to begin by understanding how important it is in God's eyes for us to be reconciled in our relationships with one another. Think about the gospel. The gospel is nothing less than a great declaration that God came to offensive, rebellious people who had broken relationship with him and went to costly, self-sacrificing lengths to make peace with his people, but also between and among his people. Remember Paul's declaration in Ephesians chapter 2 that we read in our assurance of pardon. We heard God's grace summarized as the truth that God is a peace-loving, peace-making God, and that Jesus' death and resurrection were a great peace-making effort to restore broken relationships and to form a community of peace. Remember what Paul said, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the wall of hostility between us. Notice here that God is doing two things. He's first making peace between himself and us, And he is also making peace between us as his people. See, we who are now united in Christ are one together in Christ. If we look at the implications of that, we see that when we do not pursue peace, when we do not make every effort at peace between fellow believers, we are content for the body of Christ to be broken and split apart. When we are not eager to pursue peace, We are content to see God and his body broken and split apart. If we do not pursue peace with unbelievers, we are failing to love sinners as Christ loved us. And we lose an opportunity to glorify God by testifying to his love for us. This helps us understand how seriously Jesus takes peacemaking here in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5 that we read Jesus tells us that peace between people is so important that God tells us to stop worshiping him and go make peace. The call here from Jesus is this. If you have a relationship that's stuck in conflict and you have not made an effort to pursue peace 
if we have not gone to all the extent that we can go to reconcile with this person. Jesus tells us, leave your gift at the altar and go. Put that in our context. If there's someone that you are in conflict with, and that person is available right now, and you have not made every effort to be at peace, leave this sermon. Leave this service of worship and go be reconciled. See, what Jesus is saying is stop trying to praise and worship a God of peace if we are living in anger, bitterness, or at odds with our brothers. This is exactly what John says in 1 John 4.20. He says, if anyone claims that I love God but is at enmity with his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he can see cannot love God whom he has not seen. Understand the seriousness of Christ's call to peace. I think this is added when we take this passage from Matthew 5, which says to go if we have offended someone. And if we add to that the words of Matthew chapter 18, where if you remember, Jesus says, if someone else has offended you, go and pursue peace. Robert Jones, a a counselor with Peacemaker Ministries, summarizes the call to pursue peace in these two passages this way. He says, these passages, Matthew 5 and Matthew 18, form a powerful dynamic. When we have offended someone, we are to go pursue peace. And when someone has offended us, we are to go pursue peace. In either case, he says, Jesus calls us to take the first step toward pursuing peace with others. We go to be reconciled because regardless of who is at fault, our heart to pursue peace is part of the prerequisite of worshiping God rightly. And perhaps, perhaps we know that pursuing peace is important. Perhaps we know that we should seek reconciliation. But maybe the question is, well, what does it look like to pursue peace biblically? How should I do that? What's my pattern? One of the challenges we face in seeking reconciliation in the church is that even in the church, we typically respond to conflict in the same way that the world does. Even in the church, most conflict is, is, is resolved when relationships end, grow apart, or move away. Not because of active, specific, God-honoring pursuit of peace. Even our typical approach to conflict and peacemaking usually sounds something like this. I know I shouldn't be angry with that person, but if I think about what they did, surely it's natural for me to be angry, right? Or maybe it sounds like this. I would be willing to pursue peace, but it was their fault to start with. They started the conflict, so I'm not pursuing peace unless they come to me first. Or maybe it looks like this. Look, I know I'm not angry at this person. I'm not mad. I just avoid them and walk away clean. And that keeps peace. No. No, no, and no. This is not biblical peace. Even what we reflect in the church. See, as Christ's children, our call is to pursue peace in the same way that Christ pursued peace. The gospel shapes our heart, it shapes our motivation, and it shapes our pattern for how we pursue peace. That means we forgive in the same way that God forgave us, fully, completely, unconditionally, and repeatedly, for God's sake. 
That means we forgive others because God forgave us. It means we take a first step towards peace, even while the other is continuing in conflict. You see, the heart of peace pursuit is the heart of Christ on the cross. And the real question for us in the face of conflict is, has the gospel left our heart changed? Many of you are surely familiar with Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael was a missionary for over 50 years in India. And Amy Carmichael wrote a short book called If. In this short book, she challenged her own heart to be shaped by the gospel. Listen to what Amy Carmichael says about pursuing peace because of Christ and in order to be like Christ in our relationships with others. She says this, If, if I am content to heal a hurt slightly, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace, if I forget the poignant word, let love be without hypocrisy, and I blunt the edge of this truth, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. If I can write an unkind letter, if I can speak an unkind word, if I can think an unkind thought without grief and shame, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. If I say, yes, I forgive, but I cannot forget, as though the God who twice daily washes all the sands of all the shores of all the world cannot wash my mind clean of this offense, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. If, if I take offense easily, and if I am content to continue in cool unfriendliness, though friendship be even possible, I know nothing of Calvary's love. May we know something of Calvary's love, Christ's love, Christ's death, Christ's pursuit of peace with us is the pattern, is the way, and is also the strength by which we seek peace with one another. We see the importance of peace. We see a general pattern of peace that we are to forgive and to love as Christ forgave us. But maybe, maybe we know that. Maybe we're willing to be shaped by that. But maybe we don't know how to start and how to proceed. Certainly, much wisdom is needed in individual circumstances. And so I would encourage you, where there is conflict, pray, prepare, seek wisdom from godly counselors. But I want to spend our time this morning thinking about three practical questions. Three questions that can guide our efforts to heal relationships. First question, how can I evaluate my heart and my actions to see if they line up with the gospel? Consider asking yourself this question. If God loved me, sought peace with me, and forgave me in exactly the same way and to the same extent that I am loving, seeking peace, and forgiving, and fill in the blank, Jane, is the gospel still intact? If God loved me, forgave me, and sought peace with me in exactly the same way and to the same extent that I am seeking peace and forgiving, Jane, is the gospel intact? I can only imagine the pain that Rick felt when I heard his story about finding out that his wife had committed adultery against him. And I think we would all feel some sympathy when he said, look, Jane has begged for my forgiveness, and I do forgive her, but I can't forget what she did. 
there is an immovable wall that still stands between us. But Rick's counselor brought him straight to the point. He asked, he said, Rick, how would you feel if you went to God after just your most recent sin and confessed and asked for forgiveness? And God said, Rick, I forgive you, but I cannot forget what you did. And there is still an immovable wall between us. Is that a gospel? Where is the gospel in that? Or what if, what if God said, look, there is a mountainous grudge building up in my heart because you have continued to sin and you haven't even thought about your sin or confessed your sin. Where's the gospel in a God with a grudge building up over continued sin? If God stood at a distance looking down from heaven and said to us, look, you guys ate the apple. You guys rebelled against me. It was you who wanted to do what you wanted to do instead of what I wanted you to do. So if you want peace, you come to me. Is there any gospel in that? Or Or what if God said, look, you go your way, I'll go mine. Let's stay separate and there'll be no more conflict. Where is the gospel? See, at root, forgiveness is patterning ourselves after what Christ has done for us. Forgiveness is not a feeling that has to settle into our hearts. It's not declaring that the offense just didn't matter. And it's not promising that you'll never remember anything that that person did. Because forgiveness is not passive. It's not something you wait to happen to you. Forgiveness is an active decision we make for God's sake because of what he has done for us in Christ. It's an active decision that, as Ken Sandy summarizes, says this, Forgiveness says, I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring this incident up again or use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. And I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship together. If we claim we have forgiven a person and yet we let that thing stand between our relationship, if we claim we have forgiven someone and yet we talk to others about it, or we use that incident as ammunition against the other person. We have not forgiven them. Of course, this kind of forgiveness can be costly. It will mean that sometimes we give up justice for the sake of mercy. It will mean that sometimes we suffer for righteousness' sake. It means that sometimes we may literally be carrying another's burden and taking some cost for their sin. But think how costly Christ's forgiveness was. Think how much it cost for Christ to forgive us. That is the path that he calls us to walk with him. Of course, I should note briefly, perhaps, that this kind of forgiveness does not always mean that we completely remove consequences for sin. We ought to and desire to hold each other accountable. And consequences are appropriate in many contexts. But I would argue that we fail far more by using the necessity of consequences as an excuse to continue in anger and lack of full forgiveness than we do err on the side of forgiving too freely and too fully. When was the last time we felt that we truly forgave too freely and too fully? Scripture's call is to model our heart and response after Christ. So begin by asking if our love and our forgiveness mirrors what we have received in the gospel 
and leaves the gospel intact. Second question, perhaps we are deeply and legitimately hurt by someone else's sin. And we ask, well, what if the person who has offended me is continuing to sin against me? What do I do then? Let me offer two brief comments. First, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 18 that if a brother sins against us, we are to go to him and tell him his fault between us. And most of us, when we hear Jesus' words here, we think, ah, confrontation. How does confrontation lead to peace, we might think? Or am I really supposed to go and let them know everything that I think about them? Well, of course not. And maybe part of the problem is that some of us feel like peace is the absence of conflict. And so if going to someone and talking with them about their sin leads to some conflict, we think, well, that's the opposite of peace. And so we're content to just gossip behind their backs or go to a superior and let the superior fix the problem because at least it doesn't involve us in more conflict. That's more peaceful, right? But no, we're missing the heart of Christ's call to us. And it's not an isolated call. All throughout the New Testament, we are called to go, to go to our brothers. Think of Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Or how about James 5.19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering saves a soul from death and covers a multitude of sins. We have a call to go, to go when someone else has sinned against us. Maybe this seems like the worst thing we could do, but context is clarifying. Because in Matthew 18, right before Jesus tells us to go to the person who has sinned against us, he tells a story. He tells a parable. It's a parable of a shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep because of his passion and his love for the one lost sheep and goes to pursue that wandering sheep. And right after Jesus tells us to go to a brother who has sinned against us, Peter, Peter asks, well, well, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times should I forgive my brother? And Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven times. Do you see the heart context that we go to our brother? It is the heart context driven by a passionate love for that person and desire to see a sinning sheep rescued and brought back to Christ. And it is with a heart that is eager. It is eager to forgive. And it is only when we say, my heart then is examined and is longing to love this person and to forgive them that we're ready to go. I remember one time I was driving with a friend in college and his car was ready to run out of gas. So he pulled over to a gas station, and as you might expect with a college student, he suddenly realized he had no money. And so he said, hey, I'll pay you back. Can I borrow $20? So I loaned him $20. In the course of the week, I hadn't seen anything of my $20, so I reminded him. Just a reminder, $20. And he said, yeah, yeah. Another week went by, and in another week, I started to hear stories of someone else who had loaned him money and had never gotten paid back. And then there was another person who had loaned him money and never gotten paid back. So what do I do? I want to go and get my $20 back. But if we're going to go to our brother, we go and say, brother, brother, do you know that 
your sins are leading to a reputation of someone who takes advantage of other people, who doesn't follow through on his word. Your reputation is being ruined. Do I go out of a love for that brother or I do go to get my $20 back? See, as one author puts it, he says, Jesus cares more for people than he does for getting justice for himself. Is that our attitude with our relationships with one another? We care more for those people than we do for getting justice for ourselves. If that's not our attitude and our purpose, then we're not ready to go to our brother. Second, a quick reminder that even if we do go to a person with the right heart and the right purpose, we can't guarantee that peace will be restored. Sadly, even people who pursue peace well do not receive a guarantee that the relationship will be healed. We may humble ourselves and the person may continue in their sin. But Scripture's call is not get peace at all costs. It's pursue peace as far as it depends upon you. And that means that we may need to live out Scripture's call to, in the face of sin and evil, respond with good. Remember the passage in Romans 12 that Pastor York read two weeks ago. He said, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Or maybe you think of 1 Peter 2, where, Paul, where Peter says, If, when you do good, you suffer for it, but you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. Many of you have either read the book or seen the movie Unbroken recently. And many of us have marveled and admired Louis Zamperini for literally feeding and praying for and loving and forgiving his harsh captors in Japanese prison camps. And we think, wow, here is a person who obeys Scripture. And yet, we who admire Louis Zamperini aren't willing to ask Christ to give us a practical daily love for our fellow believer who has publicly made a jab at us or insulted us across the dinner table. Overcome evil with good for the glory of our God and Savior. Now maybe finally, maybe all this makes sense. But maybe we say, well, the problem in our relationship is that there's actual material issues we disagree on. I want to stay home for Christmas and she wants to go to her parents' house. She wants to use that Sunday school curriculum and I want to use this Sunday school curriculum. So how do we pursue peace? How do we reconcile when there's an actual issue at stake here? Certainly there's much that could be said, but again, let me offer two comments. First, remember to affirm your relationship with the other person. Affirm that as you discuss this issue you value the relationship and the friendship with this person far more than you do getting your way in this disagreement if this person is a believer remind yourself and remind them that that person is someone that jesus christ shed his blood and died for so that that person is now a son of god and heir of the whole kingdom of heaven so how can we not value that person and that relationship as so much greater than winning an issue. Let the value of the friendship and the truth of God's love for your fellow sons and daughters of God be the context and the heart of your discussion about these issues. 
And second, rather than focus on your positions on an issue, seek to understand the interests behind that position. We all take a position and we all stand and we say, this is what I want. But we all have a goal. We all have a goal and a reason why we want that thing. And very often our discussions are unfruitful because we're just talking about the issue, but we never seek to understand why we want that, what the interest is behind that discussion. And it may be that in many discussions we are called to follow Paul's advice, to follow Paul's encouragement, to consider the interests of the other person above our own. Maybe many of our material disagreements, because we value the relationship and and, and the fact that that person is a fellow son and daughter of God, maybe we are called to consider the interests of the other person ahead of our own. And even if we're in a disagreement where we can't or shouldn't value their interests out of love for them, knowing the interests, the goals, and the reasons why they are pursuing something will help us to discuss and come to an agreement. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we will be better able to seek creative solutions to our disagreements if we are affirming our relationships and seeking to understand our interests behind these positions. There's so much more that could be said about conflict. There's so much more that could be said about seeking peace. But as you think about the relationships God has brought you into, ask yourself a few questions as we finish today. Whose name this morning causes you to bristle or your eyes to roll? Is there frustration or anger or maybe just cold indifference? Maybe a sense of pride that we're not like that person. Where is there conflict between you and anyone else this morning? What role has your sin and my sin played in this conflict? Or what anger or frustration or gossip have I added to the conflict, even if I don't think it was my fault to start with? What sin do we need to confess in our conflicts? And has the gospel reshaped our hearts? Do I know something of Calvary love? Am I ready to forgive as Christ forgave me? Do I look at the community of God's people and see brothers and sisters in Christ Do I look at the world around me and see people who need the love of Christ? And am I ready to say, I long to glorify God and to forgive as Christ forgave me in this relationship? Brothers and sisters, remember what Paul said to us. Let us pursue what makes for peace. Let's pray. God, our Father, When we come before you for an hour of worship, it is very easy to compartmentalize this hour and go home and return to our daily routine. It's even more easy for our sinful hearts, which are so deceitful even of ourselves, to make excuses for why we can't or shouldn't or don't need to or why it wouldn't work or why we've done everything we could. And maybe in some cases we have. Father, would we understand your passionate heart for peace? Would we we understand your desire to see us be like Christ and to seek peace as he pursued peace with us? And may we have wisdom to glorify you as we go and be reconciled.
the glory of your name. Pray this through Christ, our peacemaking Savior. Amen.